Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much again that you speak to us through your word. And thank you that you speak to us fully and finally through your son Jesus, whom we have here today in these pages in Luke. We pray that you'd bless us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to look inwardly and question and ask those questions about how much we do love your son, how much we love your son in relation to how much we know we have been forgiven. Father, please soften our hearts. Do not let them harden as we will see with Simon the Pharisee. Soften our hearts that we may turn to your son Jesus with overflowing love to rejoice with him. Father, we thank you that we read this story today and uh, we pray that you would encounter us today through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is my friend Willis. We met 10 years ago here. YF Camp 2008. That is us preparing for skit night uh, with our Fu Manchu uh, moustaches on. Uh, Willis, in 2008, my wife Steph and I were asked to come to this uh, youth fellowship camp and lead a non-Christian Bible study group. There was about 100, uh, uh, 160, oh, I, can't even, I can't remember, about 60 to 100, somewhere in between the uh, people at this camp. And there were quite a number of Bible study groups and quite a number of non-Christians in attendance. And so Steph and I were asked to take a group of these non-Christians and walk them through the gospel over the weekend. Now Willis came along that year, he knew quite a number of the people within the group and a number of people at the camp. And I noticed throughout the whole weekend that Willis was the most standoffish. On the final day, after a packed weekend of talks and Bible studies, I asked everyone in the group where they stood. How do you understand who Jesus is? How do you engage with what he's done for you? Do you accept that he's forgiven you and do you want to live with him as king? Now, as I was chatting with a number of people when I got to Willis, I noticed this. He was the most quiet. He didn't want to engage with it. He looked really uncomfortable even with the question. As I probed a little bit more, I found out for him that religion for him was something just really personal and he didn't want to talk about it. And he had this look of, I just don't want to know anymore about Jesus and Christianity. So as we left that camp on the drive home, Steph and I were chatting in the car and I said, yeah, Willis, he's probably the guy furthest away from the faith. At that same camp were another two guys in my group. I'm going to call them Carl and Tom, not their real names. Uh, both these guys grew up in church, they went to school together, and they were also friends with Willis and a number of others in the Bible study group. Now the other YF leaders, as we were putting, planning the camp together, they looked at these two guys and said, we're not sure if these guys are deeply rooted in their faith or not. And so they popped them into my group, even though it's a non-Christian group. At the end of the week, as I was chatting with them, they responded with prayers of repentance and faith. That was 10 years ago. 10 years later, and Willis, after finishing his Bachelor of Theology at Queensland Theological College, is now a staff worker with Evangelical Students, which is a Christian university group at University of Queensland. 10 years later, Carl and Tom, well, it's pretty clear that they've both walked away from the faith. So how did that happen? 
journey back with me 10 years, and if I asked you to sit in the car with me as Steph and I were reviewing YF Camp 2008, how would you assess how things went? How would you assess whether or not Carl and Tom were genuine Christians? And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean that in a way that, out of love, because we don't want people fooling themselves into thinking that they're Christians when they're actually not. So how do we determine if someone is genuinely a Christian or not? Hold that question in your mind. Because I think as we open up this passage, we'll find our answer. Come with me to chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 36. And we meet an unnamed Pharisee inviting Jesus over to his home for a meal. To recline at table meant dinner. Uh, it wasn't often that Jesus received an invitation from the Pharisees to dinner. So we're not exactly sure why this Pharisee did so. And as we read the story, it also seems fairly obvious that there's a large group of people at this dinner. Now think for a moment. Imagine for a moment that you've been invited to a traditional Asian home for dinner. What do you expect should happen? What do you think would be the routine of that dinner? Well, first, you would be greeted at the door and you would take off your shoes. You never walk into an Asian house with shoes on. And maybe you'll be given a pair of house slippers to wear. It's quite okay to wear these slippers inside the house. If you go to a traditional Asian home, you know you must bring a gift. But it can't be too expensive, but it's got to be more expensive than the gift that they gave you last week when they came over to your house for dinner. Right? Next thing is that the host will make you sure that you have a drink. And if you go to a traditional Asian home, it will be hot tea, no matter how hot or cold it is outside. Finally, you'll sit down for the meal and you know that there are rules there as well. You know that you eat when the host eats. You know you only take as much food as the host does and you never take the last piece of the food on the plate because that would mean the host did not cook enough food for dinner and that would be offensive to them, right? Familiar with those rules. I think we're all smiling, we're going, yep, we know that. Now in the first century, in the first century, there were also some normal customary routines when you invited someone to your home to eat. First, you would welcome your guest with a kiss. Now, that's not something that we normally do, but it was a warm gesture to welcome people into your home, and it's still practiced to this very day. Josh is nodding his head over there. If you get invited to Josh's place, expect a sloppy, wet kiss. All right, sort of, no, sorry. You get, you get warmly welcomed with this kiss as kind of a way of saying, we're now family. Next, it wasn't unusual to have a servant wash your guest's feet. With lots of dirt roads, uh, no enclosed shoes, walking, feet would often, uh, walking around, your feet would often become very unclean. And having them cleaned was a way to refresh yourself. And finally, you would anoint your guest with oil, a few drops on their head, as a way of saying that your guest was very special. But this Pharisee does none of that. If he was Asian, this is what it would have gone like. He would not have greeted Jesus at the front door. As Jesus entered and passed him his gift, he would have taken it with just one hand and then thrown it on the table. He would not have served Jesus anything to drink. And for dinner, he would have placed in front of him half a cheese and tomato sandwich. Not looking good. This uh, 
Pharisee is not showing good hospitality. Now, before the shock of that settles in, our attention is immediately shifted. Standing in the corner is someone who shouldn't be there. Have a look at verse 37. Read with me. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Notice in verse 37, those three beats. Behold, a woman of the city... A sinner. Uh, To be a woman of the city and a sinner was a euphemism for being a prostitute. Everyone is looking at this woman. Everyone knows that she's there. Her reputation precedes her. And everyone is asking the same question. What is she doing here? Notice at the end of verse 37, she's carrying an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, an alabaster was a particular type of pottery used to store expensive perfumes and ointments. This was an expensive gift. Notice then what she does in verse 38. First, she stands behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears are overflowing, heaving heavy sobs, causing quite a bit of a scene. Her presence there is already causing a scene. Now she's causing an even bigger scene. And then she notices that her tears are wetting his feet. And so she lets down her hair and starts wiping them, causing even more of a scene. The whole thing of letting down your hair was, not, was apparently as immodest as stripping naked. Jewish rabbis taught that if a man was allowed to divorce his wife if she let down her hair in public. All of you wives here with hair down? divorce. What she is doing then is offending everybody's sensibilities and everyone's sense of decency. Then, as if in the embarrassing scene couldn't go on any longer, she starts kissing his feet over and over and over again and then anoints them with the the ointment that she brought. Now, in all of this scene, this, this embarrassing scene, notice that she's done everything a good host should have done. The Pharisee did none of this. And here is this sinful, unclean woman causing a scene, doing what the Pharisee should have done. What an embarrassment on so many levels. Have you ever seen someone embarrass themselves so profoundly that you feel embarrassed for them? It's like watching those auditions on, you know, Singapore's Got Talent or Australia's Got Talent, of those people who just can't sing, but they don't know they can't sing. And you're watching this train wreck happen, and in slow motion, you're in shock, you're offended, you're embarrassed that you can't look away. Everyone is watching. Everyone is gasping in shock. Everyone turns to Jesus to see what he will say next. And notice up until this point, no one has said a word. No one has said anything, but that's about to change. Because the first speaker is the Pharisee, but he doesn't speak out loud. He speaks to himself in what he thinks is the privacy of his own heart. And what he says speaks volumes about who he is and what he thinks and how he views others. You notice that he complains internally. If Jesus really was a prophet, then he would know who this woman was. 
and he would never let her touch her. He would be shocked by her actions. No decent person would ever allow such a woman to touch them, let alone speak with them. She is beneath us all. The fact that Jesus can't see this proves he's not a prophet. You see in that line of thinking, in that speech there, a neat line of logic of the Pharisee. When I was in high school and I did maths, I was taught to put this little acronym at the end of every mathematical equation, QED. It stands for quod erat demonstratum, which is Latin meaning what was to be demonstrated. Basically, it means this. Here's my argument, and here's the proof for the argument. Done. All right? What the Pharisee has done in his heart is he's complained about Jesus, and then he stamped QED after his thoughts. See, the way he speaks to himself proves that he was out to trip up Jesus from the very beginning. Why did he invite Jesus over to his home and treat him so callously? He wasn't there to really hear out Jesus. He was there to prove him wrong. And he's just proven Jesus wrong. The irony, of course, is that Jesus does know who this woman is. He does hear the words the Pharisee says in his heart. And he is more than just a prophet. You can imagine the look that he gives to Simon, the Pharisee. Bro, I know what you're thinking. But without calling him out directly, Jesus tells the story. Now, he could have just called him out, but instead he goes and tells the story, and the sting in the story is even stronger. And notice in verse 40 that we then find out the name of the Pharisee. His name is Simon. Funny that. Funny, isn't it, that we don't ever learn the name of this woman, but the name of this bad guy is the one that we will remember. Right? Everyone in this story, in this narrative, they knew who this woman was. Her reputation preceded her. Now everyone in human history will remember Simon the Pharisee and how much he hated Jesus and how much he hated this woman. So Jesus tells the story, and of all the parables that Jesus told, this is one of the shortest and the simplest. Verse 41, read with me. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. It's, it's, it's not a hard story to follow, isn't it? Yeah, someone has loaned a sum of money to two people. To one person, he gives him 500 denarii, 500 days worth of wages, which in today's money might translate to around $100,000. To another, he gives the sum of 50 days' wages, 10 times less, so $10,000. They both can't pay, so he goes, all right, consider your debts cancelled. Wow. Imagine if your bank manager did that with your home loan. Imagine that on Monday. You go to your bank manager and you go, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't pay my mortgage anymore. And he looks at you and he says, it's all right, consider it cancelled. Here are the keys to your house. What would, how would you respond? You'd kiss your bank manager, right? You'd tell all of your friends about how great your bank is. Now, the story's contrast seems pretty clear, isn't it? Doesn't it? The, the sinful woman, she's the serious 500 denarii sinner. 
and he is just the less serious 50 denarii sinner. But there's something that he has profoundly forgotten in his judgmental self-righteousness. Funny how Jesus says Simon's judgment on the parable is right because his judgment is totally off. This is what he missed. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, he was here in Brisbane a few weekends ago uh, and yesterday on Facebook he posted this thought which sums up Simon's problem perfectly. No sin is a little sin. Some sins are weightier in God's eyes but no sin is a little sin because every sin is a trespass against an infinitely holy God. Every sinner, no matter if they owe 500 denarii, 50 denarii, or even just one denarii, they are debtors to God who cannot pay their debt. They are evil, vile, wretched sinners who sin abundantly and profusely, and there are good law-abiding sinners who sin quietly and subtly. But they are both sinners, big or small, and the key thing is who we sin against. You see, I've got three kids, and if they lie to each other, that's bad. If they lie to me, that's worse. But if they were on criminal trial before a judge, and they lied to the judge, that would be worse than just lying to me. You see, the more important the offended party the weightier our sin becomes. And who do we direct our sin towards? Yeah, we sin against each other. And that's hurt, that's hurtful and it's painful. But we sin against an infinitely powerful, infinitely just, infinitely good, and infinitely holy God. There are no little sins that God can just brush aside. And when you grasp that, when you understand that, and understand how much God has forgiven you, that will change everything. The more you know how much you owe, the more profound will be the forgiveness. And that's the point of the parable. Simon sort of understands that, but he doesn't do the self-reflecting necessary to see that in her and to see his own need as well. So Jesus drives the point home, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not, to, not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, we don't know much about this woman, uh, nor when she would have heard or spoke to Jesus in the past. We, we don't have any, uh, ever, like any documents or any, anything in the Gospels to tell us about their prior conversation. We don't know anything about the encounter they previously had, but we do know that whatever happened there had a profound impact on her. Think about her tears. Her life was filled with intense guilt. 
a burden so heavy on her shoulders. And now she was innocent and that weight was gone. She had lived a life of sexual promiscuity, but now God had restored to her her virginity. Men wanted her body, God had her heart. She knew what it was like to have men use and abuse her. And now she knew that God loved her tenderly with a father's affection. She lived a life of constant rejection and now she is forever accepted. Her tears are tears of repentance, but they're also tears of unstoppable, overflowing joy and love. Why? Why? Because she recognized how deep her sin was and how much greater her Savior was. Because she recognized how much she had been forgiven and she so loved the one who forgave her. Have a look at verse 47 again. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus says her many sins are forgiven. Notice, she's forgiven not because she loves Jesus. She loves Jesus because she has been forgiven. She, doesn't, she isn't forgiven because she loves him. She isn't forgiven by this grand display of love. She does this display of love. She loves him because she is forgiven. She has been forgiven much and she loves just as much in return. And this is the sting against Simon. Because for Simon, it is not that he has been forgiven less and so he loves Jesus less or that he has less sins in need of forgiveness. The sting is that his complete lack of love shows that he has not been forgiven at all. You tell a religious person that all of their religious works are nothing to God. And you will have found the most offensive thing to say to them. You are not good enough for God. You do not deserve His grace one bit. And if you hear those words in any part of your heart, protest. I am good enough. Who are you to say that to me? Then you have revealed in your heart the heart of Simon the Pharisee. Verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's be really clear. Let's be as clear as Jesus is to this woman right at the very end. He says to her, your faith has saved you. You trusted me. You are forgiven. And your love flows out of that. And in saying she has been forgiven, Jesus again stirs up among his listeners more questions. Who is this who even forgives sins? I cannot forgive your sins. Your parents, as much as they love you and have supported you over these years and are here today for your graduation, they cannot 
forgive your sins. Only God can. So who is Jesus to say that he can? But of course he can. As God come in flesh, Jesus is the one we owe our debt to and the one who cancels it for us. He takes the debt on himself and to receive cancellation, all you need to do is believe he's done it and trust him. And this leads to new love. Jesus has not just cancelled a money debt. He's cancelled a debt that you could not pay. That even if you were in hell for all eternity, you could not repay that debt. He's cancelled a debt that deserved eternal condemnation in hell. How could you not feel at once relieved and thankful and filled with joy at what Jesus has done? It seems to me that in this story we're being told that you can only profoundly love Jesus if you know how much you have been profoundly forgiven by Jesus. I think the story here is to say you can only love Jesus if you know you have been profoundly forgiven by him. And then on the flip side, if you do not profoundly love Jesus, it probably shows that you do not know how much you have been forgiven. Now, this cuts across age, across maturity levels. You, you may have been a Christian here longer than I've been alive. This still speaks to you today. And it cuts across personality types, whether you're the outgoing, emotional person like me who loves to display love and loves to do all these things and loves to be really out there and, and really uh, kind of in your face about these things, to the introverts, which is everyone else, who doesn't know how to show these things, who just kind of lives in your mind. And that's okay, because even this profound love is something that you can show in your life. So how do you show your love for Jesus? And do you connect it with how much you've been forgiven? I had a conversation with a woman at the end of the first service. I asked her, how are you going? How are you showing your love for Jesus? And she said to me, I'm trying. I just don't get it. She's been with us for a long time. I said, what don't you get? She says, oh, I understand a lot of things, but I just don't feel it. I said, okay, what is it that you understand? And so she rattled off a few things. And I said, so why hasn't that penetrated your heart? Maybe it's because you know a lot of things, but you actually don't understand them. You don't understand how they all fit together into this beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for you. Why do you keep trying harder to manufacture joy when what you might need to do is just sit down and put the puzzle together first? How do you show your love for Jesus? Have you put the puzzle together on how much you have been forgiven? What else does this story show us? This, uh, this story, I think, shows us clearly what God is like. He's loving, he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's ready to forgive from the worst of sinners to those who are just little sinners. 
He's willing to forgive. And for anyone who trusts in Jesus, they receive forgiveness. Do you know that forgiveness? Have you received it? Do you know how much God is ready and willing to forgive? Remember, it doesn't matter how, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter who you are. I think for a lot of us, we're, we're very good at putting on a front, putting on a face before people. It's kind of in our DNA as Asians that we put on a face before people, right? We have to save face. We need people to see that we are going well, that we are going okay, and that our lives are together. And I know that for some of you, in the deep darkness of your heart, you know that things are not okay. You know that there are sins in there that if you were to expose them to the light, you would run in fear. You do not want that to be shown. Do you know that Jesus can even penetrate there and forgive that? On the other end, you might feel like a normal, decent person. You might feel like you don't have much to be forgiven. But do you realize too how even the little things that you've done are so offensive to an infinitely holy God? Big and deep, little and decent, do you see your need to be forgiven by Jesus? That's the first take-home point for all of us. We all need to be forgiven by Jesus and we all need to trust and keep trusting that it's Jesus alone who can forgive. And then this story gives us two clear examples of how to respond to this forgiveness, a, a negative one and a positive one. We've got Simon the Pharisee as our negative example. He shows us what it looks like to treat Jesus poorly and to grumble and complain about other sinners and to be offended at grace. And he does all of this because he does not understand the depth of his sin and his need of forgiveness. Simply put, he does not love others because he does not love Jesus and he is not forgiven. The negative example is this, and the impossible application. We read this passage, you've heard the sermon, you walk out the door, what do I do with this? This is what you cannot do. You cannot walk out of this sermon today, you cannot walk away from this passage today and think to yourself, I don't need forgiveness. I'm good enough. I don't need to beg Jesus to forgive me. And you cannot walk out of here and look at other people and think to yourself, they don't deserve to be here. I grew up in this church. I've served here my whole life. I give generously here. Who is this person to think that they can just come in and start being and, and, and start having all the attention? We cannot walk away from this passage thinking we don't need to be forgiven. And we cannot walk away grumbling that others are here being saved. The anonymous sinful woman is our positive example. She shows us what it looks like to treat Jesus reverently, to overflow in love for him, and what it looks like to receive grace. And she does all of this because she understood so clearly the depth of her sin, and she understood the grace of Jesus went deeper still. 
she loved Jesus because she was forgiven. At the start of today, I asked the question, how can you tell if someone is genuinely a Christian? How can you tell if someone's genuinely a Christian? It's 2008, 10 years ago. Carl and Tom made a decision and prayed a prayer. But a decision for Jesus once at a youth camp does not a Christian make. In the years following the camp, the, my fears for them were confirmed. The worldliness the, that I saw a little over that weekend grew and grew. So it was no surprise to me to hear that they've both walked away from the faith. Ten years ago, I met Willis for the first time. And I walked away having very little hope for him as well. Drove off thinking, I can just kind of wash my hands of that. Willis was one of the most difficult people I've ever had in Bible study who was disengaged and just didn't want to hear what was happening. I am done. Probably won't ever see him again. Fast forward three years, 2011. The Brisbane Leadership Training Conference, now called the Ignite Training Conference, a conference designed for Christian leaders to be trained up to read and teach the Bible in their churches. It's my third year of leading uh, at this conference, and I'm leading a group of first-year delegates, basically opening up a New Testament passage and teaching them how to walk through it and understand it and be able to teach and apply it. Now, as I'm there on the first day in the morning, catching up with people, catching up with old friends, who walks in? Willis. What the? Dude, you know this is a leadership conference for Christians, right? Are you even a Christian? I'm not asking these out loud. This is all going on in my head. And in God's wonderful providence, Willis ends up being in my group that I'm leading. And so it's, it's pretty clear after the first two days, after the first two mornings, he's still a non-Christian. He just doesn't get this. He, he's reading the Bible in a very postmodern this is my own interpretation kind of way. But, you know, he's keen. He's keen to learn. So I'm a cool. But, you know, with a whole group to lead, I just don't have the proper chance to chat with him and lead him more personally through the material and hopefully in a gospel-centered, you know, trust Jesus kind of way. But on the second night, after a fantastic talk from the speaker on sin and the grace of God shown to us in Jesus, Willis pulled me to the side. He looked troubled. I know that look. It's recalling memories from three years earlier, a look of confusion as though he's wrestling with something deeply personal and I'm expecting him just to be standoffish again. Hey Willis, what's up? And he said, Steve, after that talk, I now know what a Christian is and I want to become one. I just have no idea how. It was one of my most cherished and favorite moments in ministry. Since then, I've seen him grow in his love for God's word, desiring to know it better and to teach it more clearly to others. He surprised me when he said, oh, I'm taking a, a subject at Bible college. Dude, you keep surprising me. Cut it out. Oh, it's part-time. It's just one subject. Okay, with uni. Actually, no, Steve, a couple of years later, I've gone full-time. What? Okay. And in that time, as we kept meeting up, I saw him grow in his love for Jesus as each year passed. 
And he's not perfect. He's got heaps of ways to go and to grow in ministry. But put simply, he's a man who knows how much he's been forgiven and he loves Jesus more and more because of that. How do you know if someone is genuinely a Christian? It's not just a decision that they make once. It's their new desires. It's their new loves. It's their desire to love Jesus more and to live for him. And so how about you? How is your love for Jesus? How much does it reflect how much you know that you've been forgiven? Maybe today you've been encouraged and you want to keep going and and persevering, and that's great. Maybe today you feel like you've grown cold. Remember what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He said, your love for me has gone cold. So what do you need to do? You need to serve more, you need to work harder, and you need to do more to please me, otherwise you're going to lose my love. No, he doesn't say that. He says, return to your first love. And today, if you're feeling cold, today is the day to do that. To understand how much you need to be forgiven. And understand how much Jesus has done that. Let me pray. Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your word here today shows us how much you love us and how much you forgive us. And so we pray that you would astound us again, astonish us again. As we have encountered your son Jesus today, help us to be astonished at how much he has forgiven us. And let that pour out in joyful, loving lives for you. That will look different for each and every one of us, but we pray that it will be tangible, that you will help us to know that we do love Jesus. We pray that you'll help us as well. If this morning we have heard an echo of Simon the Pharisee in our hearts, Father, please be gracious in cutting that out. Father, please be at work in us so that we might overflow in love for you and keep pointing others to how great your Son is. We pray this for our unending joy and for the glory of your Son through that. In his beautiful name we pray. Amen.